to the time of fellowship, call comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19. It says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Beloved, you are about to hear the power of God. Give heed to the word as it is preached this morning. Ask if you would turn your Bibles to the book of Romans. One last week, Romans chapter 12, and turn your outline and uh, use that as we fellowship and study uh, together. Last week we began this passage, Romans 12, as I'll reference again, I'm sure, is a transition verse in this epistle. It's masterfully written, masterfully placed, as it unites and links um, what he's just said to what he's going to say. We began last week looking at a call to a life of service and worship and what that looks like, how that's attained, how we as God's people can become indeed living sacrifices unto the Lord in practice. We are in, in, in uh, position, but in practice. So uh, we're looking at specifically verse 2 today. We'll read 1 through 2 and do a little review. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of Almighty God, our King. Please stand together out of reverence for his word as I read it. Hear now the word of King Jesus. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As Father, reading God's word, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege that is ours this very moment to have open books, to gaze upon that which the world calls folly, and yet what we confess to be life, the words of life. God, feed us richly upon them this day. Open our eyes. God, I pray that you would condescend, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts and give us eyes to see. Take away the scales, O God, that we might behold the glory of your word, the glory of you, our God. And indeed, how you would grow us in your grace. We pray this unto your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. One of the bigger challenges we have as God's people, as we endeavor to grow in our walk with Christ, is the erroneous thought that God is like us. Psalm 50, verse 12, God explains why God's people fell into sin. Or 50, uh, 21. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. Interesting. God's people made the mistake of reasoning from themselves to God. Or reasoning from creation to God. And any time you and I do that, we will have a God that's not the real God. We will manufacture a God who will look something like us, something like us in this world. No, the biblical um, order is always we reason from God, his word to us. That's what David says in Psalm 36, 9 when he writes, In thy light we see light. Think about that phrase, very short. In thy light. We see light. C.S. Lewis in The Way to Glory uh, commented on this principle. He said, In the morning when I wake up and look outside, I know it's day, not only because I can see the sun if he looks for it, but most of us don't look uh, for the sun. I know it's day because I can see everything. The sun illumines everything. Brothers and sisters, that's what God's word does. It illumines our eyes to behold reality, to behold truth. And thus, our call is to, is to live in light of it. And then flows our life. 
And that's exactly where Paul is this morning in our text. As I've said, Romans 12 is, is, is a bridge verse in this epistle. We all know Romans 1 through 11 is doctrine. It's describing the glory and the greatness and the majesty of God, the gospel, his grace and his plan. But then in chapter 12, we know is, is exhortation, the imperative, what we should do, what we ought to do, 12 through 16, five chapters proclaiming this is what therefore you should do based upon what God's done. Now we tend to think 12.1 is the first exhortation. And I'm going to suggest to you it is an exhortation, but it's not the first. It's a bridge exhortation leading us to the specificity of 12.3 and following. 12.1 through 2 is rather broad, right? Do not be conformed to this world. What does that mean? Verses, verse 3, are you not to think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think? That's specific. Use your spiritual gifts. That's uh, specific. The night is, is almost gone. The day's at hand. Let us therefore. That's very specific. 13. Okay, but here it's more broad. And what you have is you've got Paul weaving chapters 1 through 11 in preparation for the exhortations. He's weaving the principles, the theology of 1 through 11 into the exhortations of 12 through 16. And so we look at 1 through 11, and we see that Paul here is, is integrating that, those chapters into the commands. Or we could say he's grounding the commands into the foundation of grace, into the foundation of God's salvific work. So if we ignore or deny 1 through 11, 12 through 16 will simply be moralism. And boy, do we love that. But it's just moralism. Don't do this. Do this. Don't think that. Think that. And we then will, as moralists, go, okay, I need to do these things, and somehow God will be honored and I'll grow. Brothers and sisters, if you do these things without 1 through 11, God will not be honored and you will not grow. You'll become twice the son of hell. Okay? Think of Matthew 23. It's just moralism. But this beautiful passage unites the glorious indicatives of 1 through 11. What we are in Christ with the commands, these very specific commands of 12 through 16. Last time we saw what the call is. Paul says, in essence, um, serve as a worship. He's, he's talking about acceptable, uh, um, uh, a spiritual service of worship. He's talking about our call as we approach God. Now understand that. That's very important. Paul is talking about us approaching God as we, based on everything that we've seen, as we approach God, our call is to, is to indeed, as we just read here, is to be a spiritual service is to be a spiritual sacrifice of worship unto the Lord. Now, the foundation of that call are the mercies of God, which is chapters 1 through 11. The mercies of God being in the plural, as I just said, steps back from scriptures. He's not talking about 20 mercies or 30 mercies. He's stepping back and looking at all the mercies, which are infinite and eternal. You can't name them all. And they're outlined in, in their, in their outline form when chapters 1 through 11, as he details them there. Okay, so by those mercies, you do what you do. In other words, brothers and sisters, this is an incredible principle. Sanctification moves from the inward to the outward. Don't miss that. When we think of sanctification, we think of 12 through 16. Go do these things. And you will always fail unless that sanctification is driven from the inside out. It moves inward to the outward. Listen to Matthew chapter 23. Christ said these words, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, this is the phrase, First, clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside may become clean also. Now, this is counterintuitive. We think if we want to look good, change the way you're living. Brothers and sisters, biblically speaking, if you want to be a man or a woman of God, you change what's inside. 
Okay? A change has to occur inside of us. And when that change takes place, now the outside becomes clean. Matthew 23, uh, 26, it's right there. It's found throughout Scripture. So that's the foundation, the mercies of God. As you and I are, are just enraptured by all that God's done, we look at this mountain range, the mercies of God in their totality. And we go, whoa, that is what God has done. We look at God's character, his goodness, his sovereignty, all coming down to save us. Those are the mercies of God. And when we, the more we gaze upon that, the more we will grow in grace. And that then led to what I described last week as the catalyst. And the catalyst, therefore, is this little phrase, acceptable sacrifices. Or, I'm sorry, acceptable uh, to God. We tend to think if we present our bodies in the right way, we'll be acceptable, and that's wrong. That is not what this text is saying. Because the only thing that can make us acceptable to God is Jesus So it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with with God. So get this, acceptable to God is not the motive, okay? I'm doing this to become or, or the results. Being acceptable is the state that we are which enables us, which drives us to do, do you understand, brothers and sisters, every, at every moment in your life, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing in Christ, you are acceptable to God? God does not look at you and say, oh, he didn't read the word, or oh, he's in sin. Get that Christian out of my sight. Never does he say that, as I got this great quote from Jack Miller. Jesus doesn't carry a grudge, and neither does his father. When Jesus forgives your sins, they are completely forgiven. We think God's like us. So we, we think, well, man, my parents carried a grudge. My brothers carried a grudge. My sisters, my friends. Therefore, God must carry a grudge. Brothers, when God forgave you for your sin, they're done. They're forgiven. And that is the catalyst. We're called to recall that to our minds all the time. The more you understand that, the more you'll grow. The more you'll be empowered and desirous and filled with joy and love to serve God. Now that then leads us this morning to where we left off last time, and that's the caution. Notice with me verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the twofold caution. The first one is, is we must not, or we must reject worldly thinking. Look at that expression. Do not be conformed to this world. Our first inclination when we read that is we immediately think of external conduct or internal thoughts. Don't be filled with lust like the world. Don't, don't make sure what, what entertains you is not the world's entertainment. Be careful how you dress, ladies. Do not be conformed in your dress. Men, do not be conformed to the world in your purity. Right? Motives. All of these, that's where we tend to go. And while, don't miss this. While this passage in chapters 12 through 16 will impact our dress and impact our purity, that is not what Paul has in mind here. But as we're, we're all, we, we usually go immediately, do not be transformed or do not be conformed to the world. Don't act like the worldling in their ethics. And that is not what Paul is addressing here first. And we say that because we recognize, you've got to recognize that Paul is using here a put off, put on a command. Okay? Notice, do not be conformed, but be transformed. Now, in the Bible, this is a type of exhortation that follows a certain set of rules. It's a put off, put on. For example, Ephesians 4 is a put off, put on a command. And what these are is they're pastoral exhortations. Paul could just say, stop it, but he doesn't. Pastoral, he says, this is what you shouldn't do, but this is what you should replace it with. It's a very gracious way of helping someone grow. Hey, son, don't speak to your sister like that. Okay? But speak to her like this. Oh, thank you, Dad. That's helpful. And that's what a put off, a put on a, a command is. Listen to Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. Put off falsehood. Put on truth. You'll note that a put off, put on a command are opposite. That's important. Underline that. 
A put off, put on a command are, 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 are um, framed in opposites, in contrast. 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. So put off cutting language, put on edifying language. They're exact opposites. Notice 20, or 31 through 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another. Instead of being mean, be kind. Do y'all see it? That's a put off, put on uh, command. Well, our text is a put off, put on uh, command. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Those are opposites. Now get this, the, opposite, the opposites here in mind is not, this is important, worldly living, do not be uh, conformed. It's not worldly living versus kingdom thinking. That is not what, this, what, the, what the contrast is. can't be. The contrast is worldly thinking and kingdom thinking. Do you see those are opposites? That's the tension. And because of that, when we come to verse 2 and we do not be conformed, that's a very a large, ambiguous statement. What does that mean specifically? Well, I don't know from the first part. We don't know as an exegete. So we can say it must be how we, you know, drinking, dancing, smoking, and chewing, and going with girls you do or something, right? I mean, that's what that must, must mean. It's, it's referring to our ethics. But look at the second part. That tells us what he's referencing in the first. The second part is not talking about our ethics. It's talking about, as I said, the context is how we approach God. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When we get there, I'm going to show you that the renewing of your mind is a mind that is now being driven and governed by grace. It's a mind that's being driven, that is approaching God on the basis of Christ's conduct. Christ's work, not mine. That's a renewed, that is, that is being transformed by the renewing, not just one, a renewed, but a renewing mind, a mind that is being bathed in grace, bathed in the gospel. That transforms. If that's the, the put on, then the put off, the opposite of that would be approaching God with a worldly mind. Do you see it? I hope you all see that. It's important. Okay? The put off, uh, put on. This is the caution. Now that you understand the foundation, the catalyst of um, all Christian living, this is a caution. One, as you approach God, do not approach him like the worldling. Well, what's the worldly, what's the worldly mind? Um, what is that? Well, the worldly mind, brothers and sisters, as it approaches God, is all about placation. Right? The worldly mind, as it thinks of God, is all about trying to do what is necessary to earn God's approval. That's the worldly mind. It's the exact opposite of the Christian mind which approaches God because God's pleased. The worldly mind approaches him to please God. Do you realize the objective of every religion outside of Christianity is placation? My goal at the end of my life is to find out that I've done enough to make this God happy. If I'm Buddhist, I can come back as a higher form right? Um, But I've done enough to placate, to, to, to pass the bar. Christianity begins with this glorious message, you've passed, Christian. So the worldly mind is a mind that approaches God in order to get God to like him. We see it in our culture. Benjamin Franklin's famous quote, which many Christians think are from the Bible, from Proverbs, God helps those who help themselves. That's worldliness, brothers and sisters. Get this, your first act of worldliness as a, as a person, on, you know you're worldly when you're approaching God to placate him. Do not be conformed to the world in your relationship with God. That's the whole context. But yet Benjamin Franklin says, and we all like it, God helps those who help the, uh, uh, themselves. First, you have to work. And once you've worked, then God will then uh, reward you. That is not Christianity. That's worldliness. That's paganism. Do not be conformed to that worldliness. We see it in the scriptures. Paul's 
fellow countrymen, the typical Jew in Paul's day held this mentality. They were worldly in their thought life regarding God. Romans 10, too, listen to it. Paul says, I bear them witness, his fellow countrymen, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's imputed righteousness, and not knowing about God's available righteousness, and this is it, and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. You know, all of Judaism, not the Old Testament Judaism, but Mishnah Judaism, the Judaism at the time of, of Christ, which is not Old Testament Judaism, it's Mishnah Judaism, was re- revolved around establishing your righteousness. You sought to show, you wanted the world to love you, you wanted the world to like you, you wanted God to love you, and you wanted God to like you. And the way you did that was by establishing the fact that you are worthy to be loved, worthy to be liked. They were living to establish their own righteousness. So look, God, at all the sacrifices I've done. Look, God, of all the things we've done as a people, you must bless us. Okay? In fact, brothers and sisters, this mentality is so insipid. It's so a part of your fallenness that it can be named amongst God's people all the time. Listen to John chapter 9. I read this last week. As Christ passed by, he saw a blind man born from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he should be born blind? disciples were living this that man is blind so therefore that means someone sinned because God helps those who help themselves and if you don't help yourself God hurts those who do not help themselves God curses you if you do not help yourself so who was who sinned Lord his parents or him your God you know and you know what's amazing brothers and sisters that mentality is in you and my and in our hearts right now Every time you and I feel like somehow God's upset at us, we call it floating guilt, right? I feel guilty before God. Why? Because you robbed a bank? You killed someone? No, I just feel guilty. I just feel distant from God. I feel like, like God doesn't love me like he did. I just feel like, like there's just this massive chasm between me and God. Brothers and sisters, where's God right now? I'm with you always to the end of the age. Where's God right now? Okay, with you. The only reason you feel distant from God is not because God's moved. It's because you in your heart are worldly. You're relating to God on the basis of your conduct, not his. So Paul says, Christian, do not be conformed to the world. This is a huge caution. Live by the foundation of God's mercy as a a catalyst. Understand, meditate, and know at all times and all places you're accepted by God in the beloved. But now this is a huge caution. Do not allow your brain, your mind, your heart to be worldly. It's so funny. When we think of worldliness, we think of all these activities or we think of all these inordinate desires. Brothers and sisters, worldliness can be there with no inordinate desires and a perfect life. Because worldliness is not what you do or desire. Worldliness is the basis upon which you approach God. If you're approaching him on the basis of your deeds, you're worldly. Yeah, but I I dress like, like Elizabethan era. You know, I don't wear dresses. My dress goes all the way, I'm sorry, I, I don't wear pants. My dress goes all the way down. I am, I am, I am meek. I am uh, I'm very prude. I'm very well-dressed. I don't make a big fuss. No one sees me. I mean, good night. You would never think I was worldly. Yeah, but if in your heart you're thinking that because of the way you're dressing, God must be pleased with you, guess what? You're just as worldly as the bum in the gutter um, addicted uh, to alcohol. Just as worldly. Because the the core of worldliness is not what you do or think or say. The core of worldliness, as we've learned here, is on the basis upon which you approach God. Approach him on the basis of Christ. That's where we want to be. But approach him on the basis of you, your conduct, and your worldly. So Paul says, oh, Christian... Be careful. Do not. 
Be conformed in your relationship with God to how the world relates to God. Now, again, we do this all the time. The book of Galatians is written to a group of people who were living this. This this worldliness was incarnate in them. Now, if you went to those churches, you'd see worship, you'd see Bible reading, you'd see all kinds of stuff. But then, nevertheless, they were worldly. Paul wrote in Galatians 2, 18, um, explaining why they're, doing, why they're falling. He says, if I rebuild what, I, what has once been destroyed, I prove myself a transgressor. In other words, he's saying, do you know what happens? What's happened to you guys? You've rebuilt Though you've been saved by grace through Christ alone, you relate to God on the basis of Christ's mercies. Nevertheless, you've rebuilt the old system, the systems of works righteousness, the system where you relate to God on the basis of your conduct. And then in chapter 3, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you honestly think you're saved by faith? But now you're going right back to, but if I do these things, I'll grow. If I read the Bible, I'll grow in my walk. That's not true. If I take the Lord's Supper, I'll grow in my walk. That's not true. If I go to church, if I memorize scripture, if I meditate on scripture, if I study scripture till till I, till I can write volumes and books about scripture... That means I'm growing in my, in my walk. That's not true. Not necessarily true. You're growing in your walk when your foundation is Christ's work and not yours. And the more that happens, then the more... Now when you're studying Scripture... Again, do we have a problem with studying Scripture? Of course not. But don't confuse Scripture study with godliness. Or better yet, growth in grace. That will not necessarily grow you. It won't grow you if you're being worldly. But if you're grounded in Christ, if Christ's mercies is, is, is what's impelling you in your study of God's word, now, now the cup is getting cleansed from the inside out. Incredible. All right. Um, now, does that mean we don't care about law? That we don't care about Romans 12 through 16? Of course not. The question is the issue of why, the motive, the basis. Listen to the quote by John Miller. If you want to be winning in the fight for holiness or godliness, if you want to be growing, if you want the Spirit's fruit produced in you, you have to obey. Same thing as if I say this. If you want to be healthy, you got to eat green beans. you got to eat healthy. But eating healthy will not stop you from getting cancer. Right? Eating healthy does not make you cancer-free. But if you don't eat healthy, I can guarantee you, you won't be healthy. Okay? You have to obey. That's the minimum. You have to obey God's word. That's the whole point of walking by the Spirit. You have to obey and keep on obeying whether you feel like it or not. But the source and the life of this obedience is not the law, but the cross and the faith that claims Jesus. That's the point. That's Paul's point here. Do not be conformed to the world. And all of these laws I'm, I'm going to give you, there's a big risk here. I've spent 11 chapters talking about God's mercy. Now, this is a huge risk. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, verse 3. Now, the moment I say that, I have a feeling you're going to chuck everything you've just learned and rebuild what was once destroyed and not think highly of yourself because somehow that's going to make God like you more or accept you. So Paul says, do not be conformed to the world. This is a huge caution. Don't live like that. Be very suspicious of your heart, brothers and sisters. Don't live like that. Rather, notice, we must live according to the renewed mind. Notice with me to be. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the phrase here is mind. That's the key here. And the word for renewing is this activity, this action where your mind is being bathed in something as opposed to something else. Well, let's talk about this. First, what's the mind? Okay, the mind, brothers and sisters, in the anthropology of Scripture. So in systematics, you take harmatology, you take pneumatology, you take theology, you take Christology, eschatology, and you take anthropology. You study theologically man. And what you find is that the mind of man... Is not like our mind. We think our mind is the cognitive part and the heart is the feelings. In the Jewish culture, those were the same. 
And the mind was believed to be here to, to here. Okay, your bowels, okay, when it says Christ groaned, it says Christ had a bellyache in essence. He growled, he, his, his bowels were hurting. But the mind is the seat of all rational thought, which impacts feeling. Okay? It's one and the same. Now, as a non-believer, that mind is enslaved to Satan. It's dead to God. Ephesians 2, listen to it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So as non-believers, the mind is dead to God. It still can think rationally. It still can think and reason. That's not the mind that we're talking about here. We're talking about the mind in relation to God. Dead to God. What do you suppose Christ did in his redeeming work on the cross? He redeemed not only you from your sin, but he also regenerated your mind. Listen to First John 5.20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. That word in the Greek, understanding, is the same word for mind in Ephesians 2, verse 3. When Christ came and redeemed you, he opened your eyes. He regenerated. We call that the doctrine of vivification. He regenerated you. He, he brought you back to life. And now you've got a new mind. And that mind now is a mind that understands and has a relationship with God. So get this. As a Christian, our anthropology consists of this. I've got a fallen nature in me. And it wages war against my regenerate person. And my mind is the battleground. My fallenness wants my mind to live by works. My fallenness wants my mind to do what it wants. Right? You're right. That guy's mean. Treat him poorly. Give him what he deserves. But yet then the regenerated, um, part, our, our, our salvation. Now, it sounds like dualism. It's not. We're one. Um, but that saved part, that regenerated part says, absolutely not. Look how much Jesus loves you. So there's this battle going on. Galatians 6, or 5 says it, right? The mind, or the flesh sets its heart against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, so that you do not do the things that you please. There's a battle going on, always. And the question is, will you allow your mind to be influenced by the default program? If you do, you're worldly. Or will you have your mind be influenced by the glorious message of grace. That's how you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? As your mind is bathed, is convinced a day in and day out that my standing before God is Christ and Christ alone. That transforms us. It cleanses the outside of the cup. It leads to the outside of the cup being clean. So secondly, not only must we not um, be worldly in our thought life. But secondly, brothers and sisters, our calling here in, this, in God's word is we must live according to the renewed mind that we have in Christ. Now, is this going to be easy? You think sanctification by faith sounds pretty easy. Let go, let, let God, right? No, it's a battleground. I hope you get this. First Timothy 6, listen to it. 6.12. Speaking of that which is necessary in order for us to grow in our walks... Verses 8 through 11, Paul then says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Fight the good fight of faith. You know the word in the Greek for fight is? Agonizomai. It's where we get the word agony. It was used, agonizomai, fight, was an Olympic word. So oftentimes words are from commerce or from the battlefield, the military. This is an Olympic word. It was used of Olympic boxing. When a boxer went into the ring, he agonizomide. Now, to explain that, why they use that word and what that word meant in this day, I want to, first of all, let you know that boxing that we have in our day is sissy, okay? They wear padded gloves, like a pillow fight, right? They wear padded gloves, and they go out there, and they, they hit a little bit, and if it gets a little bit too hard, the ref stops them, and, you know, 
eight, eight, eight count, right? He fell down. Give him eight, eight count. If it happens uh, too much, we up, call it off. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek here. If I went to the ring, I know I'd be dead in one shot, okay? So I'm not saying it's, it's, it's sissies, okay? But compared to Rome, it's a sissy sport. In, in the Greco-Roman world, in, in the Olympics, boxing was used with leather gloves lined by lead, sharp lead objects in glass. So when I slugged you, you were getting slugged with 18, 20, 30 different points of lead or glass, right? So at the end of the fight, there'd be blood all over the place. Secondly, the loser of the fight had his eyes poked out in the Olympics, not in training. The Olympics, if you lost, your eyes were poked out. The only one who, in this competition, who is not blind at the end, is the champion. That, you know what the words used to describe what's going on in that ring? Agonizomai. It means a life and death fight for existence. You wouldn't walk in that ring going, hey, I get a couple million dollars if I take one hit and fall down? I'll do it. Give me Muhammad Ali. Give me Mike Tyson. I'm dating myself. Give me the latest, biggest, greatest guy. Conor McGregor, I guess, just fought last night. Give me Conor, baby. Let him cream me in one move, and I get millions? I'll do it. In the Olympic Stadium, no, you, you, you wouldn't do it because you'd be blind. That's the idea. Paul is evoking this, this fight, this idea, this life or death battle to keep your faith in God. Now, why would he say that if this is easy? I'm telling you right now, brothers and sisters, that's why the caution's here. Because it's not easy. Everything within you and twice on Sunday will you want to relate to God on the basis of your conduct. Everything. Let me back up and say this. How much of God's grace do you know? How much? 50% based on biblical teaching. How much do you comprehend of God's grace? Well, God's grace is infinite, eternal, and changeable. So by definition, it's very little that you know. The moment we quantify it, we quantify God's grace. Brothers and sisters, if I could quantify it, I'd say this. We know less than 1% of what God's grace is and what it means. And you think you've got it? I got it. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. Let's move on. You can never move on. Because brothers and sisters, you're called to battle for life or death, the fight of faith. Don't give up reliance upon Christ no matter what. Paul, why are you using such big words? Because it's a big deal. What's the object of this faith? Galatians 2, listen to it. For for through the law I died to the law, that is law keeping as a basis for God blessing me. Through the law I died to law keeping, that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do you see, brothers and sisters, that's the battle. Will you relate to God today and one another on the basis of God's grace? You know what that means? You won't defend yourself. You won't boast. You won't tear people down. Because people who do that are worldly. They're trying to demonstrate to the world, look how good I am by pushing this person down. Look how good I am by pushing myself up. You won't live like that. Rather, you will live trusting in this. Jesus loves me. What else do I need? Jesus accepts me. What else do I need? You want to come here and call me a horrible person? That shouldn't make me mad. Because I'm not a horrible person. God Almighty calls me son. And for you ladies, daughter. Incredible. Will you believe that? Will you fight to believe that? If you don't, you're worldly. Don't take that as a a rip. Recognize that. No, I'm not worldly. Look at me. No, but you've got that worldly kernel in your heart that will shipwreck your walk with God. No, we're cleansed from the inside out. Listen to 1 Samuel 12. It's a great example of how it works. God's people have just had a revival in 1 Samuel 12. And Samuel now is coming to them and talking to them and teaching them and encouraging them. And this is sort of his climax. He, he, he says this, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. In other words, do these things. Obey. Fear him. Obey God. Serve him. On what basis, uh, Samuel? For consider what great things he has done for you. 
Isn't that incredible? He roots the call to fear God and serve him in the knowledge of what God, God's greatness, his glory has done for you. Do you see it? The more you and I, in our faith, gaze upon the character of God, the person of God, the work of God, the works of God on our behalf, the consequence of all of this in our lives that were acceptable to him, the more that becomes our meditation, our life, our passion as Christians. Oh, more, more about Jesus. Let Christ be lifted up that I might be drawn to him. Man, lift up Christ. Lift up God. The more that that happens in your life, the more you will be transformed because your mind is being renewed by that. That's, that's where Samuel is. Fear the Lord, serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he's done for you. When you consider what God is, what he's done, it leads to this kind of life. All right, so our call um, is to give ourselves unto the Lord. The ground and our giving ourselves unto the Lord. What does that look like, Paul? 12 through 16. Read it. Give yourself unto the Lord. The ground, the mercies of God. The catalyst, the glorious knowledge that at every moment, in every place, at all times, you and Christ are acceptable to him because of Christ's work, not your own. The caution, man, whatever you do, be careful of your heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, uh, Timothy, lest you be disqualified. Watch over your heart, Christian, because if you don't, it won't be anything before you're living by works and relating to God on the basis of your conduct. Making God like you and me. No. Fight the good fight of faith. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, would you notice the result? And I wonder in my mind if not 12, if 2C is not the reason for 12, 1 through 2. Chapter 12, Paul gives us five chapters on duty. Now, what do you typically do with these chapters on duty as a, 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 a sinner, a Christian sinner? Well, first, if you've had bad experiences with failing you're going to all of a sudden feel tense because God's word's telling you to do these things and you know you're going to fail. And when you fail, you know God's going to look at you with that glare. You know that glare that your dad or your mom or your uncle or your aunt or your teacher used to give you. And he's going to look at you and say, you disgust me, Christian. So the commands could be to us at this moment tense. I don't want to read 12 through, I love 1 through 11. Don't give me 12 through 16. It's scary. Or... We'll approach it as, I can do this. Hey, guys, stay back, God. Stay back, Jesus. I got this. Both of those are shipwrecked. Notice what he says. As you are not conformed but transformed by the renewing of your mind, notice what happens. That you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He's talking about the the word of God. The will of God is God's word, chapters 12 through 16. He says that you may prove it. If you and I are transformed by the renewing of our mind, living by grace, guess what happens to God's law? We prove it. Now, what's the word prove? The word prove is the word dokumazo, and it means two things. It means a test that establishes the worth of something. And then secondly, the response of delight. I've got a sword. I quench it. I've heated it up. I quench it, I test it, I do all this hacking and hitting, and it stands it perfectly. Guess what, guess what happens to that sword in me? My sword. This is Big Betsy. Sorry, Betsy, if you're here. This is Big Betty. This is Big Betty. You know, this, I've named it. I sleep with this sword. It's my baby, Right? You delight in it. Why? Because it's tested and proven to be what it's supposed to be. Notice this word, approve or prove, carries the idea of delight. First Timothy, or First Peter 1, it's used. You have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith, that means we're going to test it, and then it's going to result in delight. Being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, that's the approving uh, process, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor. God's testing your faith, and what's the result? You, you remember this verse, at the day of judgment, or at the last of the wedding feast of the land, Christ is going to come up and individually give you praise, glory, and honor. The testing produces delight. First Thessalonians 2, same way. But just as we've been approved by God, tested, 
to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God. We speak because we know God's pleasing us, or God's pleased with us. He's tested us. He's, I'm accepted, so now we speak as one's pleasing God. We know we're acceptable to God at all times. That's this word proof. It's the idea of delight. God's delighting in us because he's proved us. We delight. What, what are we delighting in here? Look at the text. That you may prove what the will of God is. That you may delight in God's word. And these are the statements that you can say. When you look at 12 through 16, by grace, being renewed by your mind, your redeemed mind, relating to God in this world on the basis of his work, not your own. You know what God's word becomes to you? It becomes good. That means it has a, you, you, you confess it has a beneficial result. Agathos. It's good. Secondly, acceptable. You love it. You delight in it. This not only is great, it'd be good to be humble. Romans 15, um, verse, I think, no, I'm 12, verse 3. Um, it's great to be humble. Um, it's good. But then uh, secondly, I want to be humble. I don't want to think more highly of myself than I want to th- think. And then lastly, and perfect. It will not lead me into error. Infallible. Incredible. As you and I live by grace, do what this does. It, makes, it gives us a whole new relationship with God's word. No longer is this the testing ground to see if I'm godly. No longer is this the standard by which God's going to uh, judge me. Right? I'm judged by Christ. And his standard was perfection. He made it. This no longer is my judging ground. In Christ, I'm not guilty. So now what does this word become? Psalm 119, 105. A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, which I say, amen, God. That's what I want. God's word now, the commands of Scripture, become inspiration and not condemnation. They become your joy and your delight. Listen to David. After spending six verses talking about the glory of God, Psalm 19, the glory of God in creation. How awesome is God? Man, he's just sitting there just gazing, renewing his mind by the glories of the gospel. How glorious God is, how good he is, how gracious he is, how kind. Then he says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Listen to how he describes it. This is the word you'd, you might write this to your your wife or your spouse or your boyfriend or girl, right? This is a love letter. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. The testimonies of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, which is obeying God's word, is clean. Enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. The righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold. God's word. Romans 12 through 16. To the, to the redeemed who are living by grace. It's more desirable than gold. Than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warmed. In keeping them there's great reward. That's the word for perfect. It's it's infallible. It's just incredible. So now, with Paul's incredible transition, he's, he's now uh, postured us to approach 12 through 16, hopefully um, on the basis of 1 through 11, the mercies of God, being ever mindful that every command I read here could be twisted by my fallenness to be the base upon which God accepts me. God will guard my heart on that one. I can't let that happen. So i got to approach God's commands and scriptures to do them because I profess that they're good. I do it because it's wonderful. I do it because they're right and pure. This is the piper, glorifying God by enjoying him. You know, I give flowers to my wife not because I have to. I give flowers to my wife because it pleases me. And it just so happens i got a book here. It's the appendix, appendix on marriage. Husbands, these are the things you must do in your marriage, right? Send her flowers once a decade, okay? So, Janet, you're the coming. It's been about nine years, okay? My point is, I do that because I want to, not because I have to. The moment I have to, it's burden. No, that's what Paul's, or what David's getting at. What Paul's getting at, 12 through 16 is glorious, 
1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. The commandments are not burdensome. All of a sudden, God's word, 12 through 16, is not a burden. It's a delight. Why? Because I'm living by grace. Let me close with a quote of Richard Baxter. It's in your notes. Describes the impact that grace has upon the believer and his classic, a call to the unconverted. Sin that was before a jesting matter with him is now so odious and terrible to him that he, fl- that he flies from it as from death. The world that was so lovely in his eyes now appears but his vanity and vexation. God that was before neglected is now the only happiness of his soul. Before he was forgotten and every lust preferred before him. But now he is, he is set next to the heart and all things must give place to him. That only comes, if, if you're a Christian, you're reading it and going, that is not how I view, that's not my Christianity. I'm the opposite. That's because you're worldly. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Allow God's word, the grace of God. Guard your heart. Allow it to wash over you day in and day out, moment by moment. And you know what's going to happen? The outside of the cup takes care of itself because we're being cleansed from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible passage that's before us. And Lord, yes, does it affect practical ethics? Most certainly. But Father, wow, what a foundation for those ethics. For that ethic. For the calling you placed on my life to go and do likewise. God, I pray that you open everyone's heart hearing this today. That Lord, you would indeed do the work of of, of scales falling off the eyes as Christians. That we might see, first, we are accepted to you. Acceptable to you at all times. That our life revolves around something outside of us, an alien righteousness because of the mercies of God. And therefore the call to give my body to you. What does that look like, 12 through 16? God, give us the grace to do that with joy and delight and with passion and vigor. For Lord, the most important issue of our lives is settled. We're so grateful. Thank you for Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes that this moment as we bow before you, we bow before you, the King of kings and Lord of lords, as we bow before our Father and our brother and our friend. Lord, we're so grateful. In your majesty, the world can only know, but we know both your majesty and your meekness. And in that meekness, we we draw near to you as you've drawn near to us. And we say, oh, Lord, we love you. Take our lives and give us the grace to fight that good fight of faith. We pray in Jesus.